let's start. You you always know that this is more than I can do. Um, let's start. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, again for the gift of our life from you and for your presence through the day. Um, who is it? I was talking with our son, our youngest son yesterday, who's been doing a, the Bible in one year, which I'm really so glad that he's doing. And he was deeply, they've got seven kids. They're absolutely committed to their family. There's, their faith is really deep. They pull the kids out of school. They're troubled with what's going on in Catholic schools. Um, but he was describing um, how shocked he was at how violent, how much violence was going on in the Old Testament. It's running into it everywhere. And I'm only saying that because um, the work that we've been doing for the last several months, many months, six months, whatever it's been, in scriptures, in Revelation, and now in Moby Dick, I mean, it's almost been unruly violence. You know, we're looking at at the philosophies that govern the modern world and seeing that they're all in some ways forms of enslavement. Um, they're encouraging a kind of violence when, because people think those philosophies are the only ways of looking at the world. So. Um, our freedoms um, are costly and they're hard won. So I want to um, make a special prayer for this young child, Holland Jane, who's just come into our world surrounded by joy. Somebody's going to have to watch out for the um, grandmother on this one. <laughs> Keep an eye on her. Um, surround that child with your protection. Help her to be safe. To, um, to, see, to see herself safely through this first year when she's so vulnerable. Um, James? It's a boy. Is it a boy? Is it a boy? Melody? It's a girl. Girl. Holland Jane. Sit down. <laughs> um, surround, surround that um, little thing with your protection. Um, this is your love. Um, it all began be because of an overflowing of your love. You didn't need us. The love between you and the persons of the Trinity was more than sufficient. But the overbounding nature of your love shows itself in creation. And we experience it again and again when a new life enters the world. Watch out for Holland Jane, keep her safe. I ask for a special blessing on her parents. Let, um, let um, this new birth um, take them more deeply into their faith, to, um, to grow more deeply. Um, Melody has asked for prayers for as long as we've known her. Bless her soul. I know the prayers mean more to her now. She's got a new life. Um, I don't say on this. Um, part of me wants to say, learn to say no. Your, your kids are going to ask you to do an awful lot of babysitting right now. <laughs> but that's not what I want to say. Um, let all that goes on between Melody and her kids and her new grandchild be a joy for all of them.
We ask a special blessing on Meredith and her travels. It was lovely to see the pictures. Um, Meredith, if you listen in on this in the audio, which I hope you do, know that um, um, you have our prayers. Be safe. Um, let all that happens um, be a grace for you, and we hope to see you back soon. The only, the only thing, I'm speaking personally, the only thing that saved me from an envy, looking to those pictures, you and your daughter in France and Italy, was the dinner that, <laughs> that was brought tonight. We have wine and a dinner. It's, it reminds me of our parties. Um, all you have to do is say wine to this group and everybody goes nuts. Um, anyway, enjoy your trip, be safe, and we hope to see you um, here again safely soon. Um, I ask for a special blessing on our granddaughter, Cora. She fell backwards and cracked her head and had a, um, a fractured skull. She's doing well, she's doing well. But um, watch over her please, protect her, keep her safe. Um, let this thing go nowhere. Help her heal. Um, help her brothers <laughs> do what will be hard for them to do and um, help her to be quiet. Um, and I ask for a special blessing on all of us this night as we finish up this long work on, um, on Moby Dick. And a special grace is one of one of the most amazing, if not the most amazing, writer of the modern world. The, the depth of what he's shown us is extraordinary. Let all of, all of what we've received from him strengthen us in our faith, give us a greater strength, a greater understanding to take our faith to the world the way he did. Ishmael, the way Jonah did. He's, um, Ishmael, Jonah, is speaking to us, asking something of us. Um, help us to do the same with what he's giving us. We offer these prayers in Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Um, I'm going <laughs> to... I'll understand if you don't come back to our group again. Um, we may have to revise our schedule going forward. And just so you know, I'm having serious thoughts that maybe the best thing we should do is put away our books and just meet once a week to eat, <laughs> have wine, <laughs> and maybe talk about all the works that we've done. Um, like a recipe club? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would just call it an eating drinking club. Um, instead of reading a poem tonight, I've read a couple of Hopkins dark poems and a couple of light ones before we got too far into Moby Dick. It's going to have, Moby Dick is going to end darkly, you know that. Um, <laughs> call it inspiration, but it's still on me. What I'm going to do tonight in place of a poem is read a book that I love reading to our kids. When our, our youngest asked Suzanne and me to help out. Um, because they were busy if we could go into Dallas and watch Cora because because of her fractured um, skull. I'm Bob. And so I took a couple of books in that I love reading to the kids because when the, our grandkids come over I typically will read something to them. When we saw them a lot um, 
the evening would end when they stayed over I would tell them stories at night it was a ritual if I didn't tell them a story if Suzanne would have and I would have come to an early ending I think probably to truthfully to speak about it stories became a part of our life I think I told you the stories they they became nightly I would tell them stories and whenever they'd go home once in a while they'd ask their father Jonathan tell the story and our youngest Jonathan would start to tell the story and the kids would just howl and go that's not the way you tell stories. Papu does not tell stories that way. And he's never tried it since, but I'm going to read a poem. This is what I read for Nora yesterday. So you're going to get a reading of a grandchild. I love this story. It's very short, so it's the equivalent of a poem. So you can put me down with Ahab and Pip and Ishmael and everybody else on the or the Pequod who's mad. I'll just chalk this up to my madness, okay? If you don't know the book, it's called The Little Blue Truck. And I love it, honestly, because of the poetry. Whoever the guy is, because, you know, I, particularly in our church, there are people who put psalms to rhyme. They just kill them. I can't read them because they're so mechanical in their metrics. They don't have an ear for, they've got an ear for a beat. But I hate it when words do that. It's just, they turn a psalm into something mechanical and I can't read it. The guy who did this didn't do that. So I'm gonna read the, read the pages and then I'll show the, <laughs> so, so you can, this is what show and tell at the library? We sit on the floor. Huh? What? We sit on, we sit on the floor. So a little, the little brew truck, okay. Little brew, so on, sorry. funny when I think about the poems that we've read over the years. You probably remember this one more than any of the others we've ever read. <laughs> the Little Blue Truck. Little Blue Truck came down the road. Beep, said Blue to a big green toad. Toad said, croak, and winked an eye when Little Blue Truck went rolling by. You guys feel like you're having a bedtime story told <laughs> Suffer with me. It's only, it's only two minutes, okay? <laughs> Cluck, said a chicken, and her chick said, peep. Ma, said a goat. Blue said, beep. Nay, said a horse. Quack, said a duck. Beep, said the friendly little blue truck. <laughs> My wife is... <laughs> go back. Go back to the kitchen. <laughs> Honk, yelled a dump truck, coming through. I have big important things to do. I haven't got time to pass the day with every duck along the way. Here's the big blue, or the yellow truck pushing him. He's got important things to do so he can't stop for a duck. Room went the dump around a curve. He saw a puddle and he tried to swerve. Into the mud rolled a big fat truck and his big important wheels got stuck. That's the whole point of it. His heavy duty dump truck, tri dump truck tires were sunk down deep in muck and mire. Honk, cried the dump, and he sounded scared, but nobody heard or nobody cared. I hope you're all following. Be patient, please. 
Then into the mud, bump, 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 came the little blue truck to help the dump. Little blue pushed with all his might. Now blue and the dump were both stuck tight. Help, 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 cried the little blue truck. Beep, 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 I'm stuck, I'm stuck. Everybody heard that beep, beep, beep. The cow came running with the pig and the sheep. It's really funny when I do the story, I ask Cor or anybody if they can identify things, and I always try to find something they can't identify. So it becomes a, you know, a game. I can't do that with you guys, because you're, you're too knowing. Up at a gallop ran the big brown horse. The goat jumped over the fence, of course. The hen came flapping with the chick and the duck, and everybody pushed the little blue truck. So you can see everybody's getting behind blue, who's trying to push the truck. And I think you know what's going to happen. Everybody's trying to help out, even though this guy didn't deserve it. All together, one, two, three. By the way, this is probably the, the, the antidote moral to Moby Dick. <laughs> if, sorry, I shouldn't do this. If you remember when the Pequot is going into the chase in the very last, the, the, the crew is described as one person. They were so unified in their action. So here, all together, one, two, three, one last push, and the trucks were free. Melody, are you liking this? You get this book, and just know this. You don't start reading to a child when they can understand because they can feel things long before they ever get to your mind. So you buy this book, and you start reading to her. And when she grows up, tell her where you got it. Okay? <laughs> There's this class <laughs> in which the guy, the, the guy was really, he'd lost his head at some point. And, Thanks, little brother, said the dump to Blue. You helped me, and they helped you. Now I see a lot depends on a helping hand from a few good friends. Beep, said Blue. Who wants a ride? Everybody scrambled to jump inside. Oink, crack, bah, moo, cluck, peep, nay, croak, ma. Everybody has voices, including stones. Every sheep, every... So they all jumped inside with their own... It's like the um, speaking in tongues when the disciples met. I'm halfway serious here. You know, they've all got their own... Beep, beep, beep. That's the story of the little blue truck. That's my grandson's favorite book for a long, long time. This one? I cannot wait to tell my daughter that they were speaking in tongues. <laughs> <laughs> She'll think that I've really lost it. Well, it's a lot easier to take than back. <laughs> I hope you guys will pardon me for that. Yeah. Does that mean we don't get done?
Sorry? Okay, let's start. Um, remember last week I, I had told you that um, it was really important to see that Melville was doing something extraordinary. And I hope I can do justice this tonight. Um, he was writing at a time when the Christianity is failing, New England Christian world is in collapse. So he brings to his mindset a mind deeply formed by Christian beliefs. But they happen to be Protestant in their roots. And it's absolutely crucial to see that Ahab is a figure who, who's got a good enough mind, a good enough intellect, to see to the depths of things that most people don't go to. So what he's doing is uncovering that theology when most people don't go that deep, okay? Um, we'll come back to this in the end because I'm, I've got some serious questions to ask you guys when we get there, but, but basically that's what's happening. Um, he's offended. He's a noble man. It's absolutely crucial to see him in his nobility. And I think there's a certain quality to a Protestant nobility. The Protestant Reformation was raised on a spirit of defiance. You stand up and you object to something. He's got that kind of nobility. He's, um, he thinks it's inhuman um, that people should be predestined, and he thinks that everything in nature is, so the whale's only doing what he's predestined to do, and he himself is doing it. Part of, his, part of him is in revolt against that. He's a rebel. He hates the determinisms of the modern sciences. He makes that clear, too, that sciences could say that we're all determined. So he's a figure standing on the threshold of modernity. He's Christian, looking back to a Christian way of looking at things, but it's a certain form of Christianity, and he's also responding to the effect of the new scientific views. So it's absolutely crucial to see that there's something noble in it. We talked about that before. In the scenes after the sunset, around the sunset, remember when he committed, he even says, I'm damned. The sun goes down, it's an image of his soul going out. We talked about that. So Melville is showing us an action, a plot involving a man who's committed himself to a vengeance quest to get back at an evil. Because he's such a deep thinker, he knows the source of that evil is a divine order. And it's clear from everything that he's been taught that that divine order has an intentionality. It's an intention. It's intended. There's an intellectual agency doing it. It's not a mindless thing, it's, it's intentional. And it's malicious, it has a malice, it wants to hurt. And that so riles him, so enrages him that he sets out on this vengeance quest and you know that it touches everybody on board. Everybody identifies with it, everybody's been wounded, everybody knows that they've been unfairly treated in their life. If you, if you have a job, the, the likelihood is your boss is not gonna treat you well. It's, we don't get our desserts. Nobody pays us what we should. There is something inhuman to the workforce. That's all being brought out into the open. Um, but Melville's treating this in a special way. He's going back to a Christian world in which nature and the supernatural were wedded because Christ brought them together. So he's bringing a way of looking at the world that the world has lost. 
And one of the words for describing that is metaphysical. And I suggested last week that John Donne, one of the poets writing in the 17th century, was one of the best of what were known at that time as the metaphysical poets. Okay? They had a certain way of looking at things. You should have it on the, on the end. I don't, I'm not going to read them. I'm going to touch on some notes here because I don't want to spend too much, I don't want to spend too much time on it. But you know clearly by now that there's a metaphysical aspect to everything he does because Ishmael, after the quarter deck, when they set off to sea and, the, and everybody identifies with the quest, we get Ishmael reflecting on every aspect of sea life. Pictures, stories, by scientists, by religious people, by philosophers. He names a half dozen major philosophers. Melville knows them all. And he will, he will find what he calls, or Ahab calls, linked analogies between one thing and another. So a monkey rope isn't just a rope, it's a symbol, a sign of what goes on in a marriage. Whatever's going to happen to Queequeg down there while he's carving out the whale is going to happen to Ishmael. So in a marriage, what somebody does is going to inescapably affect their partner, their spouse, no matter what. So even, even if we think we're getting away with something secretly in our lives, whatever it is, it's still affecting us. If we're called to Christ, it means the sins that we carry are going to come out, even if it's not clear to other people that they're there. Because things in the universe are interconnected. Everything is interrelated. So part of the beauty of what Ishmael does is to show us those links between things that seem to be just physical and isolated, like a whalebone, um, or a picture, or a story, and he shows it's connected to something else. So it's impossible to come away from Ishmael's reflections without seeing everything's interconnected. If they are, it suggests a common source. Ahab is focused on getting back at what he thinks is an evil. So in his pride, his focus is always vengeance. He can't see beyond that. You know that. Every time they have a gam and he meets somebody else, his focus is on. Have you seen Moby Dick? Everything he does is with, with that one thing in mind. It's like a CEO who wants to be successful in the business. He's got one thing in his mind, and everybody's got to come in line with that, or he'll be gone. That sort of mentality. Ishmael's different. Ishmael finds himself out at sea, and there's almost nothing that catches his attention that he doesn't meditate on and find some meaning in it. Stones, the head of a whale, the length of a whale, a story, doesn't matter, okay? So there's a metaphysical aspect. What Melville is doing is what Dante did in the Divine Comedy. Because Dante was operating under a, a mind, particularly as he got it from St. Thomas, a mind that saw that there was being everywhere. Everything had a flower, whispers, being, the beauty of it, the form of it, yeah? If you look at a butterfly, Suzanne was looking at a butterfly the other day and, and saying she just was amazed by its symmetry, the, the, the way the, the colors lined up symmetrically. When you find that repeated over and over again in nature, you can't just say this, these are accidents. There's a purpose to nature, there's a beauty, there's a form, which means insofar as each one of them has been glimmers or whispers, gives some sense of beauty, something, that they have an ultimate source. 
And you remember in the Old Testament when Moses went to Yahweh and he had to talk with the people who said, what do I, what do I say? What's your name? What do I tell them? He, Yahweh said, tell them, I am that am. That is, I am being. He is. That's who he is. That's his name. So all things share in being. So we've got Ahab on one hand, focused on getting back, and Ishmael, who's discovering on this trip. Remember, he, he went out ready to shoot people. He was so depressed, so dark. He was bringing up funeral lines. He gets on board and, and finds these shadows, you know, appearing and dark things happening. He becomes involved in the quest. But very gradually, as he's out at sea, and, he's, and sea is a place for meditating. It's where you let your mind go. He's finding meaning everywhere. So that's the tension. Okay. So here's some examples from, I'm just going to read some lines. Um, in the good morrow, it's like that moment with Nicodemus. When they fell in love, this couple, they asked themselves, what did they do before that day? Because once you fall in love, it's as if you enter a new time. So love is described in terms of a new day. I wonder, what, I wonder by my troth what thou and I did till we loved. Were we weaned till then, but sucked on country pleasures childishly? Is everybody following? When you fall in love, it's as if you enter a new world. You're not the same person you were before when you were alone, didn't have anybody you could count on, or get angry at, at or, you know. Um, so love is compared to a day, a change in a day, the good morrow. You could write, read each of these poems and find something. I, I'm not going to go through them all. The second page, she's all states and all princes, I, nothing else is. Princes do but play us compared to this. All honors mimic, all wealth alchemy. Thou son art half as happy as we in that the world's contracted thus. In love, everything that exists, exists in them through each other in that act of love. So they've got something princes don't have, kings, even the sun, and all you know that all throws the light. He's comparing his love to a, a condition that's greater than any of a king, or even the planets, the sun. Um, call, call us what you will. We are made such by love. This is still the canonization on the back of the first page. Call her one, me another fly. We're tapers too, and at our own cost die. And we, and we in us find the eagle and the dove, the phoenix riddle hath more wit by us. We two being one are it. When they die, they rise again like the phoenix. The image of the two flies, he didn't use the word moth, but the word flies really refers to moth. When moths go to the light, you know they die. So he's describing a love drawn to the light. You know, so... Call her one, me, another fly. We're tapers too, and our own cost die. So they're both the moths that are attracted to the light, that is in each other, and they're killed by the light. But they're the tapers too, they are the light. They're made one, and are like the phoenix. They rise again out of that death. And there was a play on dying. The word in Renaissance time, the word dying or to die would have been equated with um, sexual intercourse, the, the climax. So. The death, or, he's punning on words. So in that, moment, in that moment of dying, when you sort of lose consciousness in a climax, you're, you're dead, you're gone. 
but you come to life again. Um, you could read any of these poems and you'd find it what he would have called a metaphysical conceit. A conceit is a figure of speech. You all know what a simile is and a metaphor, yeah? A simile is comparing one thing to another, but through the use of um, like or as. Um, she was like a bear, right? As you're comparing something in her to a bear, she can get very fierce. Um, a metaphor is different because you take away the grammatical as, as or like. You'll say, she growled. That's not a simile. It's saying that she's like a bear, but you don't use the word like. So a metaphysical conceit was using one thing to pull different things together. And there's always something strange between one thing and another. Because they don't, they don't immediately give off that relationship. And I'll give the last one here because it's, it's probably thought to be one of the strangest. But um, in the last poem, A Valediction for Midday Morning, <coughs> the poem's written to his supposed mistress. <coughs> As virtuous men pass mildly away and whisper to their souls to go, while some of their sad friends do say, the breath goes now, and some say no. That is, when somebody dies, people say they're dead. But there are other people who say they're not dead, they're going to another world. They're, you know, it's a stopping off. And so let us melt and make no noise, no tear floods, nor sigh tempests move for profanation of our joys to tell the laity our love. They're not going to get hysterical. They're not going to weep when they pass or leave or depart and come back or die. Moving to the earth brings harms and fears. Men reckon what it did and meant. But trepidation of the spheres, though far greater, is innocent. Dull sublunary lovers love whose soul is sense. We live in our bodies and our senses. Cannot admit absence because it doth remove those things which element it. The last thing we want to do is lose each other or be absent. We miss each other when we're gone. But we by a love so much refined that ourselves know not what it is, enter assured of the mind, careless eyes, lips, and hands to miss. Our two souls, therefore, which are one, though I must go, endure not yet a breach, but an expansion like gold, to airy thinness beat. You can keep beating gold forever and it'll just keep expanding. It won't die. It won't break. If they be two, they are two so as, as stiff twin compasses are two. Thy soul, the fixed foot, makes no show to move but doth the other one. You guys have a picture of this, yeah? Compasses like this. Um, what do you call them? Mechanical comp artist, Architect compasses, drawing compasses. You know that the one foot is fixed and you can move the other and so if if it moves out, the fixed foot moves towards it. If it comes in, it moves in. But they're never separated. One is the one is always holding on to the other, responsive to it as it in whatever it does. Thy soul, the fixed foot, makes no show to move, but doth if the other do. And though it in the center sit, yet when the other far doth roam, it leans and hearkens after it and grows erect as it comes home. Such will thou be to me, who must, like the other foot, obliquely run. Thy firmness makes my circle just, and makes me end where I've begun. 
Those are metaphysical conceits. I mean, it's just done using things of ordinary life to show that um, that love encompasses all these paradoxes. That's the nature of love. Love should not close us in the very nature. Link it to Christ. If he's the creator of all things, to love with him means, in some sense, we should find ourselves opening to all things. The mind, sh- the, the, the world should enlarge, not shrink with him. Okay. So there's that quality, what I'm calling a metaphysical quality, to all that's happening with Ishmael. When he looks at something, he's always finding some connection between that and something else. So as we read Ishmael, we're, we're experiencing the interconnectedness of the world. The, it's not a scientific world in which things are isolated and disconnected. Everything is interconnected. So we're watching two ways of looking at the world. Ishmael's goes back to a Catholic medieval way of looking at the world. All things are interconnected because they have the same source. And a scientific world and a Reformation world that's very dark. Very, very dark. Okay? Let me stop there before we... You were coughing, so I brought you Oh, somewhere. thank you. I'm good with wine. <laughs> thanks. thanks, thanks, Doc. She was being kind because she heard me coughing. I told her the wine was fine. Okay, let's start. Moby Dick. God, you guys are, holy cow. I was watching you. Thanks. To see which one you would choose. Thanks. That's good. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Wow. Let's not stop at 8.30. (laughs) Um, I'm going to give you a couple of other quotes just to... um, This was a dear friend who was a colleague at at Notre Dame. Um, I mean... um, UD. Gene Kurtzinger was a novelist. He wasn't a critic, he was a novelist, um, and I was fond of him. Um, his wife died, and Suzanne would have him over to our house every two weeks, and he would take us out to Olive Garden every other week. And um, when he died, I was asked to do the preface. Um, it was an honor for me to do this. So this is from the preface to his book. He loved Moby Dick. He's a, he's a Catholic writer. He read Moby Dick every year. I'm not exaggerating. That's how much it meant to him. Um, but I, in looking at some of his novels, I, I quoted to show that Gene Kurtzinger was trying to do something different from modern novels. He set his novels in a naturalistic world, like modern novelists do, but he had a different way of presenting things. And I'll just give you a couple of examples because these are instances, again, of something metaphysical. Okay. So, we come across a passage like this. Hastings, who is a character in one of his novels, Hastings drew a slow breath. The stone cacophony of Dallas rose around him. The smog moved through his pores. He had been manipulated, used. The stone cacophony. 
Does he mean cacophony, harsh sound, or cacophony, A? Because the spelling is A. Because if it's cacophony, it's a sound showing through, like phanos, um, epiphany. It's a showing through. He's punning, but he's playing in words. But he, he does that to show that um, this wall may be giving off light. Here's another. High above three pigeons floated against the sun, nudging an old vague memory he couldn't refresh. Pigeons nudging an old memory? There's, things are not isolated. They're affecting each other. Things don't leave Corey alone, they nudge him, much as a poet does. And just after this, he says, she smiled into his face. Stop and think about that, just for a second, would you? Usually we think of a smile as coming from somebody. He said she smiled into him, as if to, to suggest something in that smile entered him. And honestly, tell me the truth. Is it, is it not true of all of you, when somebody smiles at you and it's a genuine smile, don't you feel something entering you? It just doesn't stay out there. Right? Are you following? There's this interconnectedness in being. Gene couldn't write a novel without doing that, because that's the way he saw the world. Is that the way most people see the world? Isolated, autonomous individuals who are all unique, isolated one from another. That's the, that's the modern world. Isolated, how's it, what's, John's words. Isolated, autonomous individual. Isolated, autonomous individual. We're all isolated in our autonomy, in our selfhood. I'll leave it, I could write, I mean I could give, but you're all following, yeah. That the same thing is going on with Melville. That through Ishmael, we're learning to see an interconnectedness to things that enters him. That way of seeing is becoming a part of who he is. Okay? And, and the, the power of that is, you've got to feel it more because we said it next to Ahab, for whom nothing is anything but an object. And it's an object full of malice. He's got to strike back at it. That's the modern world. The modern world is ugly, there's a malice, there's an evil. You've got 90% of the movies excuse me, coming out of Hollywood have to do with horror. The modern world is evil. Where did that come from? The Reformation. It didn't come before. It's in the Reformation that nature becomes depraved. We're fighting aliens, an alien nature. That's not what Ishmael is showing us. And he's becoming one with that way as he learns. Okay? And here's one of the things I'm going to say finally um, to try to put the the best side on this as I can because I believe it. If we're reading as we should and the book becomes a part of us, just as it does for Ishmael, then what's happening in the story um, should be telling for us. In some sense, we are exactly like the people back in New England. Proud, comfortable, secure, caring more about money than other people, Right? I mean, we could go, we went through all the characters. Mrs. Hussey, um, Father Mapple, Peleg, Bildad, um, Coffin, you know, with Lazarus right outside his door. That's us. That's a comfortable bourgeois Christianity. And it's hypocritical. It doesn't even see. 
when Ishmael goes out to sea and, and we're with him, we're learning to see the roots of that failed Christianity. What's wrong with it? Do the people back home see it? No, they do not. Do they reflect at all? No, they don't. Is everybody staying with me? For us to go on that journey together in this book means we're that people, that New England people, a, fail, a, a bourgeois Christianity, but we've gone out to sea with Ishmael. So we left that land and we can't be the same again because we can't look at things the way we did before we read Moby Dick. I hope that's clear. Being in this class means you're reflective about things that you were not reflective about before. So you're back in that New England culture. I can't say, I hope I'm saying that strongly enough. Being together doing this work is not just our sitting here drinking wine and having food as good as that is. It's that our minds and hearts have been challenged all along to see things, to look at the causes beneath sea and see there's real dangers to the world we're living in and to understand them. Now, the wasn't like a modern. He just didn't face us with these alien things that we couldn't understand. We've got Ishmael understanding them and we understand a lot through Ahab. What's wrong? So we left that New England world and entered a world of reflection. So one of the questions I'm going to ask at the end of the class is, can we go back? Even when we go home? It's like the question that I've asked before so many times. When we take the Eucharist, where are we? Are we just going to the car? Or is there something else going on? Are you all following? So we can't just read books. You know that how important that's been all along. And that's particularly true of this book, because what Melville's doing is setting us up with that all those set-up chapters where we're seeing what's wrong with this New England Christianity and then taking us out to sea so we can see what's underneath it, what's actually going on there that those people don't have a clue about. If we're taking that seriously, we, we can't remain who we are even while we still are who we are. We're changed. We see things differently. Okay. Okay, very quickly, the gams. To complete the gams, I, you know that we went through most of them last week. Um, we left with the, um, the Enderby. Um, the Enderby, those aware of the mysteries but being materialist or pragmatist, face it with stoic denial and glibness. They laugh it off. It's easier to be a skeptic because then you don't have to deal with pain or, um, or suffering. Remember, um, the captain lost his arm and the and the surgeon who performed the surgery, both of them tended to laugh everything off. We know people like that. Their only response to the world is to laugh things off. It's their response to the pain, because the pain is surreal. They meet the bachelor. Their ship is filled to the brim with oil. They're wealthy, self-satisfied. They're unmarried and know little of the trials of marriage. They're frivolous and fortunate and use their good fortune as an invitation to do little but be comfortable in life. They deny the mystery because to admit it or acknowledge it would require compromising their hold on the wealth and the security they covet. Have heard of Moby Dick but don't believe in him. 
This is like the, the guy who comes to Christ who says, I've done all this. Remember, what else do I do? You remember his answer. Yeah. Is everybody following? This is a pretty serious indictment of a Christianity failing. Here's the bat, it's called a bachelor. <laughs> They're free willing, doing what they want. The pots are full of oil. They're, they're bringing a ton home. They've been nothing but successful. It's like somebody coming home with, you know, a year of extraordinary success and overflowing with money. And what we see here is, is the effect of that wealth has been to, to make all of them take life for granted, to be comfortable, secure. remember when the men were getting drunk after the quarter deck too they all wanted to yeah. were imagining Polynesian women the Rachel those who enter the mystery without choosing to and losing loved ones as a result as those who lost the innocents massacred by Herod in response to the coming of Christ um, they can turn to no one for help nothing will replace their loss they are alone like Christ and Rachel weeping over her lost children deeper into the cross the day before Ahab getting close the captain lost his son he wants he asks that Ahab offer him a ship to help him Ahab is so preoccupied with what he does that he won't help um, the delight those who encounter with the mystery has turned their joy into sorrow the ships pass in the midst of a burial remember the captain says he's lost four men for its four at sea, or three at sea, I can't remember, four at sea, and one about to be buried. So as the um, Pequod moves on, they watch the burial slab drop the body. So the irony of the title, Delight, that they've lost four and they bury one, and it's interesting because once again, what we're seeing is what can be taken as an omen. Every one I mean, independently of the gams, but almost every one of the gams can be taken as a omen. There's something speaking to Ahab, helping him to see something. Does he see? One of the more important questions for us as readers is, when you, put all the, when you put all the gams together, remember, here's home, New England, here's the sea. The gams are a method by which we have to constantly relate ourselves to this land to see where we are. Are we with the delight, the bachelor, the town hall? How do we stand with respect to this mystery? Have we entered into it? Do we ignore it because it's too painful? Because it asks too much? So the gams are all means by which we enter more deeply into the mystery and find out where we are with respect to it. Okay? Okay. Um... Let me stop here. Any questions about what we're doing so far? This is a pretty, what, what's beautiful, I, this, this is an amazing book. Ishmael never, never lectures at us. Never lectures. He never moralizes. And I can't read this book without being convicted again and again and again and again and again. You know, he's so good. He's got such a sense of humor. He shows us the world, but he does it in a way that keeps making us aware of where we're standing. I would think with some shame. You know, I mean, 
How deeply have we entered into the mystery? Are we taking it seriously? If we take what it might, you know, what I suggested a minute ago, if this is home and C is the world of reflection where we, our powers of reflection take us into mysteries, so you just don't take things for granted the way people back home do, where are we? Will these reflections deepen our faith? Will it strengthen us in what we're doing? This is just not fluffy literature. <clears throat> you know, it's just, what, what, do they, um, what do they call fluffy literature when, um, when you're escape literature? You know, you, you read it to get away from work. You don't want to read Moby Dick that way. <laughs> work, won't, work won't seem the same afterwards. Ishmael's five conversions. I've suggested that, remember, it's important to see that an action is taking place. Ahab is a tragic hero. He's noble. He's on this vengeance quest. Ishmael joined the quest, but stage after stage after stage, he dissociates himself from it, and we see a man learning to stand in relationship to nature and God differently. Okay. Here's his five conversions. In the very open, you remember as he watches um, Queequeg whittle on Yojo, um, he says um, he watched him and he found his splintered heart beginning to soften. That's on page 85. In the hyena, Ishmael nearly drowns in his first lowering and forced to take stock of his fate. He makes out his will. He's accepted death. It's like Achilles. The third one in the monkey rope, he experiences what hap what's going on between him and Queequeg is interregnum in providence. It's at page 381. It's an injustice. He doesn't cut the rope and says, I'm not going to do this. He stays at risk. He doesn't run away. And so there's a real heroism here. He, he sees what, he's, what he might face. He doesn't turn from it. He stays in it. He gives himself um, in a squeeze of the hand. Remember, we read it, I think, last week when they bring the spermaceti. It's just one of the funniest chapters in the whole book where he's squeezing the spermaceti, you know, and he's squishing it. And he starts feeling the hands of his. And he said, We were squishing. It was, I can't, what he was doing is saying, We're squishing love forever. It's just, you can't, can't stop squishing it. He's, he's overcome by a tenderness for his job and for his other men, for these other men. In the triworks, we saw that last week. Remember, he looks into the oven and he finds an infernal vision. Um, and it changes his stance towards fire. He's actually turned around and he almost brought the ship to its end. So there's a moment when he has to turn when for the first time in the narrative, we see that Ishmael actually sees evil for what it is. And it's frightening. It's terrifying to see. Remember the description of the ship going to hell? The fire of it just taking it to hell? Okay, let me stop. Any questions about what we're doing? What I, what I would like to do for the next 20 minutes is very quickly go through some of the chapters, just summarize them and read them. Because I want to get to the end and ask what to me are some of the troubling questions for the whole book. But before I do, any questions on anything we've done up to this point?
I'm just going to do a quick summary and and you know in in keeping with my practice what I'd like to do is at this point let the book speak as much as it can so you're hearing the words of what goes on in these chapters but I want to get to the end of the book so any any questions about we never do this let's do how about a 60 second break for whatever anybody wants to do <laughs> How do I delete that off air? What, what can I do to get that off air for the people who... You're to blame for all of this tonight. Melody, while all of us are enjoying eating here, can we, can, can we do anything, answer anything for you? Or? She's on the phone. No, I have to confess, I, uh, I haven't read much the last few weeks, so I'm going to You've had a lot going on. Yeah. No. Yeah. I'm so glad you're a grandmother. Me too. I am. I really am. You guys are thinking about moving or going to stay or? Good. Just keep looking towards Grapevine and and Rich North Richmond Hills. There's really some wonderful houses in this area. There really are. Yes. Yeah. Where does she live in relationship with the baby? Say. Ask her where she lives in relationship with the baby. How far away? Anne's asking, how far away are you from where your daughter is with the baby? Yeah. Are they going to are they thinking of moving? They're they are looking at moving, but they're talking about Florida. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. Tell her to tell her to focus on Florida. If it's if it's a choice between Colorado and Florida, tell her to go to Florida. Oh, Bob and I are going to have a fight right now. For bikers, if you if you're not a biker, what do you do? Smoke weed. I can't believe our world is so different from what it was 
you know, 40 years ago. Okay, let's go back to work. We've got... Skates. Put on your roller skates. Doc! <laughs> when the I'm going to be quiet. <laughs> Bob and I know better. <laughs> Suzanne, we're waiting. Okay, stay with me. Stay with me, you guys, because I'm going to... Remember last time we ended talking about the doubloon and uh, Samuel Enderby, the gam. In chapter 102 in the Bower and the um, Arsacides, um, Ishmael describes, hold on to everything really closely because one of the questions, I'm, and I, who, Bob, somebody asked it last, or a week or two ago, what does he know, what does he bring back? So try to hold, I'm going to go through this quickly. I want to just summarize some things to spend some time at the end. Ishmael's reflecting on things. How much of his reflections actually occurred in the sequence in which they're presented here in the plot, okay? In the Bower of the um, Arsacides, this is chapter 102, it's page 522 in my book. Um, he's describing measuring the whale, and it's comic because, and here's the irony, the tribesmen are offended. What Ishmael is doing by measuring the whale is blaspheming because that whale, the skeleton, is their temple. That's where they worship. Now, just quickly, what's the irony of that? The whole modern scientific world is based on quantifying mathematics. I'm not exaggerating that. The whole approach to modern science is mathematical. It quantifies everything. It reduces it to something measurable. Um, you can control it. 
Here, you've got a savage people holding on to customs of something sacred that's, in some sense, a parody of what goes on in the modern world because the whole modern world has turned that upside down. They've made science and an attempt to quantify everything absolute knowledge at the expense of religion. He knows what he's doing here. Um, in chapter 106, when he leaves the Enderby, remember he, um, he injures his leg again and he has to, he has to um, have it redone. And he describes the carpenter um, on page, this is um, 106 on, on my page 540. He's describing the carpenter who does this work on all the, the handyman work of the ship. Page 540. Thus this carpenter was prepared on all points and alike indifferent and without respect at all. Teeth he accounted bits of ivory. Heads he deemed but top blocks. Men themselves he lightly held for capstans, for things. Well now upon so wide a field thus variously accomplished and with such liveliness of experience in him too, all this would seem to argue some uncommon vivacity of intelligence, but not precisely, for nothing was this man more remarkable than for a certain impersonal stolidity, as it were impersonal, I say, for it so shaded off into the surrounding infinite of things that it seemed one with the general stolidity, stolidity discernible in the whole visible world. If everything in nature is nothing but matter, he can do with it whatever he wants make teeth out of ivory, a human being can be treated. And by the way, I hope, I hope this is clear. After the Copernican Revolution, um, when the Earth took its place among the planets, so it was no longer in the Ptolemaic scheme at the center of things, it was out there, it could be studied like everything else, but according to its determinisms. So when scientists look at things, they look at what's determined, what can't be other than it is, because they want to get to laws, what's predictable. So in that sense, their view of man is that he's matter. He's made up of matter, and all that he does as a human being is determined, according to these six laws. So you've got artificial intelligence communities that think they can make human beings out of machines and remake our human nature. And so even if we think this, this is new, I mean, remember I, I quoted that book, How We, How we Became Post-Human? This woman is making an argument that if we do certain things, we can create a, a, something superior to human beings. Even if we think that's new, it isn't. We're getting a prototype image of it here in the, in the carpenter um, who wants to treat Ahab as, you know, if it's nothing more than a leg. And you know how sensitive Ahab is about his leg. So Ahab's not going to take kindly to any of this. That leg is... He's already been offended by these impersonal gods and everything that they're doing in the universe. This is really amazing. This is our universe. What, El what Melville is showing us is our universe. And you've got somebody who is caught by it. He's a product of it. Ahab fighting it. And you've got somebody looking at it and seeing something different. But this is our universe. All that he's showing us. Um, he likens the carpenter to Prometheus, who is the one who created man, who gave him fire so that he could learn. 
So um, on page 41 it says, he was a pure manipulator. His brain, if he'd ever had one, must have early oozed along into the muscles of his fingers. He's like one of those unreasoning but still highly useful multum in parvo. Um, it's a contrivance. Everything is mechanical. Um, Quiquiv gets sick and he makes his coffin on page 553. Um, he makes his, com his coffin, and if you remember from the chapter, he, he takes his yo-yo, yo-yo, yo-jo, sorry, in with him, and he prepares for his death. So he takes all of these things to accompany him on his journey. Page 553. Kukuk now entered, entreated to be lifted into his final bed, that he may make trial of its comforts, if, he, if, any, if any had had. He lay without moving a few minutes, then told one to go to his bag and bring out the little god, Yojo. Then crossing his arms on his breath with Yojo between, he called for the coffin lid, Hatchy called it, to be placed over him. The head part turned over with a leather hinge, and there lay Quiquig in his coffin with little but his composed countenance in view. Rarmai, it will do, it's easy. Um, go down a few lines. Seek out one Pip. Pip comes along. And Pip says, seek out, this is so important, seek out one Pip who's now been missing long. I think he's in those far Antilles. If you find him, then comfort him. For he must be very sad. For look, he's left tambourine behind. I found it. Rig a dig, dig, dig. Now, quick, quick, die, and I'll beat your dying. So Pip shows up at the coffin as if it's a funeral. But he, he thinks of himself as if he's completely other than himself. He's so dissociated from himself. He speaks of himself as if he were another person. So remember, one of, the, one of the ideas we left on last week is, particularly with Pip, something we saw very clearly in Lear, in both Lear and Gloucester. When both of them were going mad, they were seeing things about themselves that nobody else had seen, not even themselves. That's on the heath, remember? And everybody watching looked at them as if they were mad. And what we were learning is there's a reason in madness. That very often what's going on in, in that kind of madness is it seems to be mad because they're seeing something who people who are overly rational don't see. Okay? And people call them mad. And I, the, the wonderful end, if you'll remember, you remember it for a minute, I mean, lots of critics don't read the ending that way, but I do. Remember when um, Lear calls for Cordelia and Edmund says, quick, because he, he knows he sent Cordelia to her death. They bring Cordelia out and she's dead. And he puts, Lear puts her in the arm and she's dead. Everybody's watching. The doctor, who's the scientist, is watching this take place. And then Lear says, in this tender, tender moment when he says unbutton, you know, it's as if he needs air. And then he suddenly goes, look there, look there. And it's as if he sees breath. And it's those lines where he goes, never, 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 he'll never see her again. But then he goes, look there. The doctor says, let him be, because he thinks he's mad. But the question we're left with is, does he see Cordelia in the next life? My position, you know my position, my position is he sees her. She's on that threshold. Um, 
Desdemona has the same moment in Othello when she's dead, if you remember, and she comes back to life again and, and somebody says, who did this to you? And she says, nobody, I myself. She's taking blame. The feminists say she's protecting her husband. The other possibility is she's on that threshold, this, this liminal, what's called a liminal experience where you're in the threshold of this life, looking into the next one, seeing things you didn't hear. So this whole theme of reason and madness is focused in particularly Pip and in some ways with Ahab. Okay. Here we've got Tip, Pip talking about himself knowing that he's mad and somebody else. Um, 450 or 554, it, Pip continues, form two and two, let's make a general of him. Ho, where is his harpoon? Laid across here, rig-a-dig, dig-dig, huzzah. Oh, for a gamecock now to sit upon his head and crow. He's looking at Queequeg, who's preparing to die. Queequeg dies game. Mind you that. Queequeg dies game. Take ye good heed of that. Queequeg dies game. I say game, game, game. But base little Pip, he died a coward. Died all a shiver out upon Pip. Because remember, he's been accused of a coward. Queequeg's looked at as a hero. Now, how are we going to look at these two figures at the end of the story? When Queequeg goes down, so does Pip. The only one who survives is Ishmael. Who's a coward? Who's, who's the hero? In the, in the terms in which things are unfolding right here. Um, um, on 559, I don't I don't want to go into this, but I want to read a bit of this as an example of the metaphysical quality that I'm talking about. Okay. It's 112, the blacksmith. Ishmael is describing the blacksmith um, doing his work, but we learned that the blacksmith lost his family, and instead of committing suicide, it was less common then than it is today, but instead of committing suicide, he shipped out. So he's a, he has something in common with um, Ishmael because remember, Ishmael was in despair. He was ready to bring up funeral lines. He was, over, over, he was depressed, overwhelmed. He goes to sea. So did the blacksmith, Perth. On 559, a, a page in from the beginning, but one night under cover of darkness and further concealed in a most cunning disguisement, a desperate burglar slid into his happy home and robbed them all of everything. And darker yet to tell, the blacksmith himself did ignorantly conduct this burglar into his family's heart. It was the bottle conjurer. Upon the opening of that fatal cork, forth flew the fiend. There's the first literal identification with Fadala and Ahab who's fiendish, he's got fidelity in him. Forth flew the fiend and shriveled up his home. Now for prudent, most wise, and economic reasons, the blacksmith's shop was in the basement of his dwelling. He goes on, he sets out to see. Who is this burglar? It's Sorry? It's Drake. Yeah. Is everybody clear? That's a, there's a metaphysic. He's using a figurative thing, like a bottle, as a, a synecdoche, a, a part for a whole. It's a thing, metaphorically, to stand for something else. It took over his home and it killed his family. Alcohol ruined him. 
Lost everything. Oh, woe on woe, O death, why canst thou not sometimes be timely? Hadst thou taken this old blacksmith to thyself, ere his full room came upon him, then had the young widow had a delicious grief, and her orphans... You know, he's so often, he's so often plain... Here, the back story of this novel is predestination. It's one of the governing things that so torments Ahab. Are things determined? Fate, did fate send Ishmael to sea? Was God behind it? Here he's saying, if this death had only happened earlier, his, his wife would have been spared. But it didn't. So he's constantly aware of why things happen when they do. Why couldn't they have been put off? Or why not happened earlier? Or... So here's an instance of a man turning to drink um, who lost his whole family. Um, they meet the bachelor. We've gone through it. Um, um, three things I'm just going to touch on briefly. Um, Ahab looks at the quadrant one day, and the quadrant relates him um, to the sun. Is that right? The quadrant relates him to the sun. And he crushes it, stomps on it, kills it, because he says, it tells me where I am now, but it won't tell me where I'll be. He, he wants control of the future. That's part of what this vengeance quest does. If you're, I hope everybody's following this. If, if you want to get back at somebody, in some sense you're trying to control the future. You're trying to be like God. Because it's out of our hands, right? The quadrant he crushes because it won't tell him where he wants to be. So one of the instruments that should help him navigate, he does away with. In a few chapters, he's going to do the same thing with a compass. Because the compass will relate him to other things on the earth, where he is north, south. You know. it, it's destroyed in the storm, and he makes a new needle himself. So he takes control of it and does it himself. The log line tells the speed of the ship and it's old and corrupted. He wants to make a new one. They pull the line up and put it back on and it breaks, it snaps. And I want to get to that because um, um, Pip on 597, um, Pip comes in again in a touching way. Here. So three navigational instruments, three Three pieces of technology Ahab takes complete control over. So he's not turning to the way in which reason can be used through technology to help guide him. His hubris is so great that he places himself above it. Hold on to this, you guys, really well. When we do, if we get there, because I want to get to it right away, if we get to go down Moses, which is Faulkner's answer to this, Ike, the chosen one, remember, so this is Ishmael, the outcast. Go down Moses, the hero is Ike. And it's going to be a very modern reading of Ike, this Isaac. Isaac as a boy is going to be tutored by an Indian, Old Sam Fathers. And he will, he will have to make a choice with respect to his watch, his compass, and his gun. The three pieces of technology that all hunters use. I'm not going to tell you what happens. But hold on to this point here because Ahab has just taken control, dismissed one of them, taken control of these three instruments of technology. 
so that his relationship to Moby Dick is one completely of his own. It's a little bit like uh, Star Wars when the voice says, what does that voice say? Use the force. For, but but is he, he's in the cockpit and he's got to drop the bomb and he says, use the force. It's saying, give out the technology. That at that point, you've got, you can't depend on the machine. It's, it's got to be something intuitive between you and nature. Because you're going to go to deeper sources of rationality to do that. So Ahab's at this point now. Okay. 597 in the log on the line. This is chapter 125. The Manxman, the old, the old veteran on ship, says, get away. The greater idiot ever scolds the lesser, murmured Ahab, advancing. Hands off from that holiness. Where sayest thou, Pip, was boy? Ahab takes a hold of him and says, see something in him holy. Stop and think about this. Ahab's mad. He's able to see something in Pip nobody else sees. Because everybody else dismisses Pip because he's crazy. And Ahab says, leave him alone. Where sayest thou, Pip, was boy, a stern there, a stern. And who art thou, boy, I see not my reflection in the vacant pupil of thine eyes. O God, that man should be a thing for immort immortal souls to see through. Who art thou, boy? Bellboy, sir, ship's crier, ding, ding, dong, pip, pip, pip. One hundred pound of clay reward for Pip. Five feet high, because <laughs> remember, Stubb is always saying, you can have $100 for getting a whale. <laughs> Here's um, Pip selling himself for money. Looks cowardly, quickest known by that, ding dong ding, who's seen Pip the coward? There can be no hearts above the snow line, oh ye frozen heavens, look down here. Ye did beget this luckless child and have abandoned him, ye creative libertines. Part of the reason he's saying that, I think, is that he himself has been so formed by these theologies that that's the way everybody looks at Pip. He's a little Negro boy. He was a coward. He jumped. Everybody on board shares that way of looking at things. That's the way they all see it. Ahab sees that there's something more to be seen because his tendency is to go to metaphysical depths. He did beget this luckless child and have abandoned him, ye creative libertines. Here, boy, Ahab's cabin, sh cabin shall be Pip's home henceforth, while Ahab lives. Thou touchest my innermost center, boy, thou art tied to me by cords woven of my heartstrings, come, let's down. What's this? Here's velvet shark skin intently gazing at Ahab's ham and feeling it. Ah, now, had poor Pip but felt so kind a thing as this, perhaps he'd ne'er been lost. This seems to me, sir, as man rope something that weak souls may hold by. O sir, let old Perth now come and rivet these two hands together. The blacksmith, let him rivet them so that they'll never be separated. O boy, nor will I thee unless I should thereby drag thee to worse bottoms than him here. Come then to my cabin. Lo, ye believe in God's all goodness and in man's all ill. Lo, you see the omniscient gods, oblivious of suffering man, and man, though idiotic and knowing not what he does, 
yet full of the sweet things of love and gratitude. Come, I feel prouder leading thee by thy black hand than though I grasped an emperor. Let me stop for a second, because I can't pass on this. What's wrong with Ahab's view of things? It's been there all along. He's saying, the, the gods know nothing of the suffering of man. What's the one reason we cannot say that in a Christian world? Because of Christ. Is everybody clear? The whole world may go on indifferently and say there can't be any God, or if there's a God, he's a cruel, indifferent God. Otherwise, why would he? We've done this with Boethius. Why would he let all this suffering go on? There's only one answer to that. Only one is Christ. Because there's nothing he didn't suffer. So, whatever anybody else says about this, the one thing they're not admitting or seeing is that. And that's what Ahab's doing here. And that's what everybody on board ship is doing. That's the way they look at people. I mean, the, we can say the one, thing, the one thing that's absent from this whole cruise, I'm saying this really seriously, the one thing that's missing from the way these people see things is the cross. It's a Christian culture. It's the one thing they don't see is a cross. Yeah. Right, right. So what are you saying here about Ahab's relationship with him? Go ahead, Mary. Say. What are you saying? What, are you, what am I seeing here? I don't know. Tell me what you're seeing. And all. I just thought maybe he was feeling sorry for him. Ahab for Pib? Yeah. 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 One of the wonderful things that's going on here in my mind at this scene, and it, I want to get to the end because it's going to pick up again. Um, there's nobody on this boat that reflects on suffering. Ahab does. So does Ishmael. Pip has experienced it firsthand. He was abandoned, you know, to drown. And there's that wonderful passage that I read last week about seeing the, the foot on the loom of the, the treadle you know, God in the beginning of things. It was a mystical vision, as if he saw to the depths of everything. And he's mad. Um, it's the one thing nobody, nobody on, none of the crew members can relate to that. Their way of looking at this kid is that he's mad. They just dismiss him. It's the way people are encouraged to do when they treat each other as things. If people don't fit into our categories of what it is that constitutes a human being, we look at them as things. In that one respect, Ahab and, and Pip are alike. Ahab is absolutely tormented in his whole life. I mean, he, there's nothing but torment in his life. Pip's mad. So you can say in one sense that it's almost easy for Ahab to identify with him. Um, nobody else will. Everybody puts him down. Uh, it's a strange affinity, but there is an affinity there, I think. Anybody want to add anything to that? It's a later on Ahab does have some reflection on the fact that he's basically abandoned his family. He's been out at sea throughout his whole marriage. Yeah, I want to read that passage too. Yeah. Well, I barely at that time his marital 
Yeah, I think his identity with Pippa is very clear because Ahab has lost something significant of himself. So he has that very much in common with him. Yeah. Yeah. No one else on the boat understands it. Yeah. 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 And since Ahab looks upon himself as rejected by God and all of this, then I thought maybe he would have a little, some compassion for this child. For Pip. Yeah. The other side is tied up with his own anger at what he calls the gods. God and nature, nature and nature's God. And he expresses that anger by being protective of Pip in a way that the gods are not. Or even the crew members. Stubb Stub was ready to abandon him. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the quadrant, the compass, the log line are all done away. The Pequod meets the Rachel. Remember the captain asks for help to find his two sons and he refuses and they go on. They meet the Delight and remember it's the, it's the ship um, that's lost, I think four at sea and they're bearing one now and the Pequod goes on as the body slides into the water. Go to um, chapter 132, page 618 in, in my book. The Symphony. I want to read this because I think Melville's doing something amazing here. It was a clear steel blue day. The firmament of air and sea were hardly separable in all that pervading azure. Only the pensive air was transparently pure and soft with a woman's look and the robust and manlike sea heaved with long, strong, lingering swells as Samson's chest in his sleep. Go down. O oh, immortal infancy and innocency of the azure, invisible winged creatures that frolic all around us, sweet childhood of air and sky, how oblivious were ye of old Ahab's close-coiled woe, but so have I seen little Miriam and Martha, laughing eyes, elves, heedlessly gamble around their old sire, sporting with the circle of singed locks which grew on the marge of that burnt-out crater of his brain. When Ahab looks out at the world, he sees an indifferent world. What flower weeps? Let's say a wife goes out in the backyard to garden and she's carrying a great grief because something her husband does. Will that wife find a responsive, a response, an answering response from the flower? Nature's indifferent. It seems to be indifferent. You remember in, in the medieval world, there was a consonance, there was a logos. So John Milton, or poets in the Dante, would have written po poems about a flower weeping over what was... Because remember, the po remember the poems that I wrote about the, the, the cox and the horse? Remember the, the knight that had died and the, 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 the deer that was pregnant came to help? The, we, I read those poems before we started. Because it showed us we were back in the Middle, middle Ages where nature was responsive to man. That there was an interconnectedness of things before the world changed. Ahab's looking out on a world that's indifferent. It, it does not share his anguish in some way. So it's a mild day and he says, oh Starbuck, it's a mild, mild wind and a mild looking sky. On such a day I struck my first whale, a boy harpooner of 18, 40, 40, 40 years ago, 40 years of continual wailing, 40 years of privation, peril, storm time, 
For 40 years has Ahab forsaken the peaceful land for 40 years to make war on the whores of the deep. I, I laugh because I, when we did the Odyssey, remember I told you, Ish, or, uh, Telemachus grew up without a father. All the boys on the island did because all the men were away at war. It was a paradigm of modern life. How many men spend their lives working so their sons don't even know them? I mean, one of the problems of life is that typically men, and now women, are working. How many children grow up with parents showing some kind of tenderness or care? Forty years, for forty years to make war on the horrors of the deep. I, and yes, Starbuck, out of those forty years, I have not spent three ashore. When I think of this life I've led, the desolation of solitude has been the, um, the masoned walled town of a captain's exclusive. He goes on. Um, go down a few lines. Um, away, whole oceans away from that young girl wife, I wedded past 50 and sailed for Cape Horn the next day, leaving but one dent in my marriage pillow. Wife, wife, rather a widow with her husband alive. I, I widowed that poor girl when I married her. Um, go down a few lines. Why this strife of the chase? Why? Why do we do this? Um, go down. Do I look very old, so old, Tarbuck? I feel deadly faint, bowed and humped, as though I were Adam, staggering beneath the piled centuries since paradise. God, 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 crack my heart, stave my brain, mockery, mockery, bitter. Um, have I lived enough joy to wear ye and seem um, feel thus intolerably old? Close, stand close to me, Starbuck. Let me look into your human eyes. Go down. I see my wife and my child in thine eyes. No, no, stay on board, on board. Lower not when I do, when branded Ahab gives chase to Moby Dick. That hazard shall not be thine. No, no, not with the faraway home I see in that eye. Oh, my captain, oh, my captain. By the way, you've heard that, that, that phrase often in movies. It's a, I mean, you'll hear an inferior go, oh, my captain, oh, captain. Um, oh, my captain, my captain, noble soul, grand old heart. After all, why should anyone give chase to that hated? Away with me. Let us fly these dead. We will let us home. Wife and child, too. Um, Next page, what is it that nameless, inscrutable, unearthly thing is it? What causing, hidden, and <clears throat> Lord, <clears throat> Lord and master and cruel, remorseless emperor commands me that against all natural lovings and longings I so keep pushing and crowding and jamming myself on all time recklessly making me ready to do what in my own proper natural heart I durst not so much as dare is Ahab, Ahab, is it I, God, who, that lifts this arm? But if the great sun move not himself, but is an errand boy in heaven, nor one single star can revolve, but by some invisible power, how then can this one small heart beat? If God made everything, and he's the governor, this is, we're back to Boethius, because Boethius makes this claim. God made everything, he directs everything. If that's so, does the sun move according to its, its destined plan? And if that's so, do I move my arm? Or is it moved? Is it determined? Where do murders go, man? Who's to doom when the judge himself is dragged to the bar? 
If God's behind it all, where do we go for judgment? Because our judgment's against him. The whole book is about a, the implication of a Protestant view that puts God on the dock. If evil's in man, where did it come from? Um, I'm going to go through this very, very quickly. And the first day they, they go, um, Ahab's boat is upended and they all go back. The second day they set out again and they lose Fadala. The wires get entangled and they present a, date, a danger to each other and Ahab becomes aware that he's lost Fadala. Fadala has already given him a prophecy that um, Ahab will face two hemp's of two hearsts and that Fadala uh, will return before Ahab lived. The irony is that Ahab, Ahab says that's all reason for not dying, not being afraid of death. Let me get to it because I want to, I've got The irony of that is for anybody to say that implies the possibility, possibility of death is real. And Ahab takes it as an indication that he's safe. It's a little bit like Macbeth with the prophecies to him. Because there's not going to be any hearse and two lines. Well, um, the next day he sees Fadala lined up, tied to the whale. And he says, there's the first hemp, the first hearse. And it's only on the third day for the third lowering when Moby Dick goes after the ship. And remember, it's, it's American made. It's what is American made. That he says, there's the second um, hearse. All the prophecies are coming true. All the warnings have been not. Um, they go down for the second lowering. Um, um, and... Um, they realize that um, Fadala's gone and Ahab um, Starbuck says it's an omen stop Ahab omen oh, this is chapter 133 at the end omen omen the dictionary if the gods think to speak outright to man they will honorably speak outright not shake their heads and give old wives darkling hint begone he, he says stubborn starker alike What's your response to Ahab's words there? Starbucks saying it's an omen. We've lost Fadala. I mean, things keep happening. Ahab's response, omen? The dictionary. If the gods think to speak outright to man, they will honestly speak outright. Not shake their heads and give an old wives darkling hint. Something that ninnies do. Begone. I'm a brave man. If the gods are going to speak to me, let it be in bravery. Not this ninny stuff. Wait, wait. You two are the opposite poles. Start because stub and stuff. What do we learn from Ahab? Go ahead, Chuck. Well, it's this hubris. Here he's, he's frustrated with God. He's not following Ahab's plan. <laughs> he's like a person who wants a sign. Oh, good. Because the, because the apostles con. What's wrong? Has he not been given signs? <laughs> I mean, I can't count the number of signs, the number of you know omens he's to be given. It's not like by the by the way, do, um, is there a commensurability between our language and the God and and here the Word of God? Christ is the Word of God. Is there a commensurability between our words and the Word? There is a faint one because Christ took on our nature; He's the Word. But you know from, we know from our faith, from what Christ did, is he spoke volumes. Everything he did revealed God. 
Did everybody believe him then? Even though he spoke it so clearly, and even though his actions showed his father. How, I mean, God has done everything he can to speak to us. There, there's a commensurability because of what Christ did. He made words clear to us. But in one sense, there's an incommensurability because they're not measurable by the same standards. One's divine, one's human. How well do human beings listen for God? God's been speaking to Ahab all along, but his pride, his determination to do this, kept him from seeing and hearing. Um, so we come to the end. I don't want to. I don't want to go through this because um, I want to get to this because I've got several questions and I want to be careful of our time right now. You know what happens? A or after they lower for the third time. Um, the ships go back because they're crushed um, by, yeah, um, Ahab sees that the Parsi is tied to Moby Dick and he realizes that the um, prophecies are coming true and he begins to have a sense that um, he might die and he's frightened. On page 644 in the last chase the third day, oh Ahab from the boat because star because has followed his commander's decision to not leave. Oh, Ahab cried Starbuck not too late, even now, the third day to desist. See, Moby Dick seeks thee not. It is thou, thou, that madly seekest him. He's beginning to see all of this. 645, as he saw this, as he heard the hammers in the broken boats, for other hammers seemed driving a nail into his heart, but he rallied. And now marking that the vein or flag was gone. Remember there was a, um, of a, um, a hawk taking the, the, the red flag from the mast. It's gone. As he saw this, he, he heard the hammers and the broken bones for other hammers seeming to drive a nail into the heart. But he rallied. Now marking that the vein was gone from the masthead, he shouted to Tashtigo. Tashtigo's the, the one American native. One was African um, Quiquig, remember Dagu, Quiquig was a native islander. This is a native American. He's on, he's on the masthead with a hammer. Now marking that the vein was gone from the masthead, he shouted to Tashtigo, who had just gained that perch to descend again for another flag, to go up. The ship is going down. Milby Dip comes at it, stoves it. Ahab is there, he gives one last throw, and um, the whale takes him on 347. Look ye sun, moon, and stars, I call ye assassins of as good a fellow as ever spouted up the ghost. For all that, I would yet wring glasses with ye, would ye but hand the cup. Oh, 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 thou grinning whale, but there'll be plenty of gulping soon. Why fly ye not, O Hab? For me, off shoes and jacket, to it let Stubb die in his drawers. A most moldy and ovi salted earth, though, cherries, cherries, a uh, flask for one last year. Stub and flask are looking at this heroically. Because all along, in fact, in fact Stubb said it when, um, when Ahab crushed the, um, the quadrant, that what he's doing is brave because he's going to go it alone. It's like men watching a brave soldier say, good for you. It shows how tough you are. So in one sense, he's praising what Ahab's doing and saying the same thing to Flask. Um, Ahab, or Moby Dick, 
crushes the the, um, the boats and then heads for the Pequod. 6488, the ship, the hearse, the second hearse, cried Ahab from the boat, its wood could only be American. Go down a few lines, I turn my body from the sun, what ho, Tashtigo, let me hear thy hammer. Hammering sounds keep going. Tashtigo is up there, the hawk comes back, and just as the hawk comes back to the flag, Tashtigo puts his hammer, pinions him there. So the last image we have of the ship going down is Tashtigo with the hammer holding the hawk down as the ship goes down. This is the last chapter, or last paragraph of that chapter. But as the last well-means intermixingly poured themselves over the sunken head of the Indian at the mainmast, leaving a few inches of the erect spar yet visible, together with long streaming yards of the flag, which calmly undulated with ironical coincidings over the destroying billows they almost touched. At that same instant, a red arm and a hammer hovered backwardly uplifted in the open air in the act of nailing the flag faster and yet faster as if, well, I'll leave it. What does this mean? Why is it so important to get that flag there? He's dying, he's going down. This bird now chanced to intercept its broad fluttering wing between the hammer and the wood and simultaneously feeling that ethereal thrill, the submerged savage beneath in his death gasp, grasp, kept the hammer frozen there and so the bird of heaven with angelic shrieks and his imperial beak thrust upwards and his whole captive form folded in the flag of Ahab went down with the ship which like Satan would not sink to hell till she had dragged a living part of heaven along with her and helmed herself with it. In the epilogue, you know what happens. The coffin pups up with um, Ishbel in it. The, the, um, the sharks and the birds have their beaks and mouths sheathed so they can't attack him. And it ends this way, buoyed up by that coffin for almost one whole day and night, I floated on a soft and dirge-like mane. The unharming sharks, they glided by as with paddocks on their mouths. The savage seahawks sailed with sheathed beaks. On the second day, a sail drew near, near, picked me up at last. It was the devious cruising Rachel that in her um, retracing search after her missing children only found another orphan. I want to read these two, I'm sorry it's late, I want to read these two um, passages and then put some questions to you. In the very beginning chapter, the very first chapter, when Ishmael describes himself going to sea, he says this a couple pages in, people get beaten up all the time, captains ask you to do bad things. Remember, hold that steel kilt chapter when Sukup disobeyed, remember Radney wanted to thump him? They do it all the time. What does that indignant amount to weight, I mean, in the scale of the New Testament? Do you think the Archangel Gabriel thinks anything the less of me because I promptly and respectfully obey that old hoax in that particular instance? Who ain't a slave? Tell me that. Well then, however the old sea captains may order me about, however they may thump and punch me about, I have the satisfaction of knowing that it's still all right that everybody else is one way or another served in much the same way, either in a physical or a metaphysical point of view, that is. And so the universal thump is passed round and all hands should rub each other's shoulders blades and be content. <coughs> is that a thought that he had 
as he was shipping out? Or is that a thought he came to at the end? The very end of that first chapter, he tries to picture himself in the design of providence. He says, um, I should now take it in my head to go on a whaling voyage. What's all going on in my life? This the invisible police officer of the fates who has the constant surveillance of me and secretly dogs me and influences me in some unaccountable way, he can better answer that than anybody else. And doubtless my going on this whaling voyage formed part of the general program of providence that was drawn up a long time ago. It came in as a sort of brief interlude and solo between more extensive performances. I take it that this part of the bill must have run something like this. So he presents a newspaper, you know, as if it had, because there's no computers in a big newspaper, with big headlines and smaller and big. So it says, Grand Contested Election for the Presidency of the United States. Big headlines. Small words. Whaling voyage by one Ishmael. Big words. Bloody battle in Afghanistan. So there's nothing to count in this newspaper. But he, he acknowledges a providence in things, a providence, and a design to things. And says, who isn't beaten up at times? Remembers Ahab's response to the loss of his the man who's the editor, this is, the, uh, this is probably the most prestigious collection of essays on Moby Dick. It represents the best of academia. Yeah. This is the Norton. And one of the editors writes this at the very end in one of the last essays in the book. He's talking about the use of words like magic, enchanting, romantic, trance, charm, mystical, marvelous, secretly, hooded phantom, pretentious, mystery, he goes on and on, showing two different kinds of words, groups of words, most of them being having to do with things that are mysterious. The two series continue intertwined through the book, and as vocabulary items alone, they imply not only a habit of Ishmael's perception, but a major thematic proposition of the book itself. Life, so this is his summary on Moby Dick with Ishmael as his focus. Life, the cosmos, and everything in it taken as a microcosm confronts man as a compelling but insoluble mystery. So, my question here at the end, sorry. A couple of questions. In the last 15 chapters, say, that we just quickly run through, we've got Pip going mad. We've got Ahab tenderly taking Pip's hand. We've got Ahab and Starbuck in that tender exchange where Ahab drops a tear and cries. And he is so moved by seeing Starbuck's family and Starbuck's eyes that he says, do not go down, do not lower, stand board. There are all these tender moments where we see Ahab far more human than we've seen him in the entire book. And then we've got the chasings once it's happened, and, we, and Ahab's taken control of the quadrant, the compass, and the log line. He's taken absolute control of that ship, and when they have the sightings, they have the three lowerings, and then he has that comment, and the very last one he said, all of this was foretold a billion times ago. 
It's all predestined a billion times before we were born. And then he will go down and Ishmael will survive. Why does Melville have all those tender scenes, those exchanges between Pip and Ahab and Starbuck and Ahab? And um, what do we make of those ending scenes when Ahab sees that the prophecies are coming true, that everything that the Farsi told him is coming about, that it's a hearst, that he's um, dying from it, he's going to go to his death. Um, why does he do this? And what in the world is the meaning of that last instant of the ship going down with Tashtigo following Ahab's orders, putting the flag back up and hammering it down and catching the hawk and taking the hawk down with him. All the hammering in Tashtigo, the hammering of the waves, the hammering of the coffin, um, the three days, the three masts. Say again. He's beginning to have a con Melville is beginning to have a concept of God's mercy. Okay, I'm gonna wait on that one because it's anybody go ahead, anybody else? I don't want to I mean the question I don't want to ask, but I don't want it answered. Is he damned? Or, or maybe I should ask it. Is he damned at this moment if this is about God's mercy? How are we to look at what's going on? Doug, can you find that passage where it says, it's all been decreed? It's in the, do you remember? I can't. Chuck, go ahead. I want to, can you find it? Can you, Chuck, say it again. Oh, I was just wondering, I mean, you, you, you threw out an awful lot there. So do you want to talk about uh, Ahab's moments of humanity and his tender feelings? Go where you want on this. This is the ending. What, how are we to look at the ending? A lot is going on right now. Say it again. Say it. He's viewing the creator as the creator of, of the magnificence of this world, but also of man himself. And he's showing the good, tender moments of man, saying there, there should be salvation somewhere. There should be some sort of... Do you see Ahab as being saved then and not damned in this ending? I don't, but, but God's mercy, we, we never judge people when they die. Uh, this, is reduction, this is a reduction of Ahab. This is, this is where we see that Ahab's not in control at all. Well, and also, I think, otherwise, I personally would see Ahab as a very one-dimensional character. Say what? One-dimensional. Yeah. yeah. He's just bad. He just has this vengeance, and that's all there is to it. And I think those other scenes do make him more human. Is he damned, Anne, in your mind? Or saved? looking back that he was so harsh with everybody. Mm -hmm. 
he knew that they were going to go down. So I think he's looking back and he's trying to make amends with everybody. So he is trying to do. But he doesn't. Even at the end, he doesn't stop. No, he, yeah, he's. I mean, he pushes. He put. Right. He's over and over and over. He could have pulled back even at the end. He doesn't. I mean, he's absolutely determined to the point of dying right. to see this through. These tender feelings of his aren't voluntary. He would prefer not to have them. Probably. It's sort of like an assertion of 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 God over him. It's in his nature. He can't eradicate this, no matter how hard he wants to be. It's like he has no control. Although everything he does is with the. Did you find it, Doc? Was she talking to Starbucks? Um, it's at the very end. God. Can I, just for a second, I'd like to, do you all think that he's, or maybe, I mean, it's a tough thing to, is he damned? Um, 7.30, read 6. I've got here's the line let me stop here's the line I've been looking for this is just at the end of the second chase and he says Starbuck this is 638 on my page at the very end of chapter 134 Starbuck of late I felt strangely moved to thee ever since that hour we both saw thou knowest what in one another's eyes but in this matter of the whale, be at the front of thy face to me as the palm of his hand, a lipless, unfeatured blank. He saw a family, a loved man. He was tender enough about it to say, don't lower. And now he's saying, you will be to me as an object, a thing in my way, a lipless, unfeatured blank. Ahab is forever Ahab man. This whole acts immutably decreed, t'was rehearsed by thee and me a billion years before the ocean rolled. Fool, I am the fate's lieutenant, I act under orders. Look thou underling, that thou obeyest mine. Stand round me, men, you see an old man cut down. And the men gather as one. They see, they, what they see is this man doing this heroic thing. But ere I break, you'll hear me crack. Until you hear that, know that Ahab's hosser toes this. He's like a brave man saying, I can be done. I can be surrounded by a hundred men. I'm not going to stop. So to them, he's an image of perfect nobility. He is brave. He's courageous. He's taking on the fates. Um, believe me in the things called omens, then laugh aloud and cry encore. For ere they drown, drowning things will twice rise to the surface and rise again and sink forevermore. So with Moby Dick, two days he's floated, tomorrow will be the third. I, men, he'll rise once more and only to spout his last. Do you brave, ye feel brave, men brave, as fearless fire. They're all one behind him. How do we look at this ending? And, and particularly as it ends with Tashigo nailing that flag down. Eyes at that moment to continue his vengeance quest. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, uh, uh, called, uh, you know, going, supposed to go home. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, he's defiant to the end. Mm -hmm. Yep. He's leaving that to his biggest 
Mary, you got something, I know, because what's going? No? Just, he was not giving up. That's the flag was showing that we still own this. So he had to put the flag up. This is our ship. We own this. It's not the whale. And he was he was not gonna give up. And his spirit showed up in his crew members. And he was gonna take as much down with him. I think that line where it says, just like Satan, yep. took everything he could with him into hell. So the bird of heaven with archangelic shrieks and imperial beak thrust upward and his whole captive form folded in the flag of Ahab went down with his ship which like Satan would not sink to hell till she had dragged a living part of head along with her and held herself. It's going to hell. Um, here, let me offer a thought and, and you tell me what you guys think. One of the two things I think we have to hold on to here. One is we cannot take away Ahab's nobility. If, if, and we, I've said this before a couple of weeks ago when I went through the chapters when he was likened to the English kings. You know, that there was some, the nobility there. If we take nobility away from a tragic hero, we minimize the tragic fall, the consequences of it. That was true of Hamlet, Othello, and by the way, these are all Christian heroes. And I think there's a diff they're different from pagan tragic heroes, like Oedipus or, you know, um, wherever we want to go. Othello, Hamlet, Macbeth, Lear. We've read some of those, so... Ahab's noble, absolutely noble, and it seems to me the nobility has peculiarly, I'm going to say this, Protestant. Because there's an element of defiance standing up for something. It's a grandeur, you stand up. The first response of a Catholic should be on his knees. First response of a Protestant is he's, he's going against something. He has to defend something to stand up. He has that um, sort of stoic dignity it's close to respectability. He's noble, he looks good, you know. But the spirit of him is, um, it's like taking solo fidea, faith alone. But when that faith diminishes, it turns into a self-centered pride. When it becomes sec when solo fidea becomes secular, it becomes myself is greater than anything. You can't tell me anything. That's solo fidea when it becomes secular. He has that sense. He's, he, he has that nobility, it's private, it's absolutely personal. He's been wounded. He shares that experience with everybody on board, with everybody in life. That, one of the reasons I read that line from Ishmael is Ishmael says, who hasn't been wounded? The universal thumb goes around. I, it brings us to this question, what does Ishmael bring back to us? What are we to learn from this? Ahab's a noble man. If we take away any of the nobility, the tragic sense is lost. I think what Melville is saying is um, damnation, this is the cost of damnation. It's never easy and it's never cheap. When damnation comes, it takes the very best of a man. And we're going we're gonna to minimize what's lost by minimizing that action. 
I mean, who would feel a tragic emotion if there was nothing to lose? You've got to feel the nobility. That's why Melville is doing so much that he does at the end with Pip, with Starbuck. This profound tenderness. I think the point is, if we don't feel that, we don't understand the cost of damnation. What it means to lose any of this, because the last ending with the ships about going down with Satan is that that ship's going to hell. Everybody on it. Everybody on it. And here's my thought, and I'm glad for anybody to disagree, but here's my thought on that Tashtigo image. The la if this is going down, Ahab saying, put that flag up, exact, I think exactly as Mary put it, own it, that's us. He's going to defy till the end. What's really interesting, if this has to do with the Reformation, and I'm saying it does, I read you that line from Chesterton last week where he said that it's, um, it's like an unmitigated evil, what it said in motion. If man is evil by nature, we're living from within Christianity. We're living with a horror. If this is uncovering what's buried in the Protestant world, what we're seeing is this great nobility answering those Protestant doctrines. Predestination, the private will. Those are the characteristics of fine Ahab. If that image at the end means anything, at least as nearly as I can understand, it's an expression of spite. I'm not going to quit even... It's like a heroic man going down, and he doesn't see the irony of it. Is everybody following? It's spite. If there's anything defining Satan, it's spite. He didn't, he didn't just say, I defy you. He set out to destroy everything he could. He wanted to hurt. If I'm understanding this correctly, it seems to me that this is the, the most profound unmasking of a serious disorder at the center of Christianity in the modern world. And I'm, I'm going to make the other argument that I think Catholics are given to it. All of us. It's our world. That at these moments of real nobility and our pride, we've got to be careful if we're taking this seriously because we're getting an image of when one of us gets wounded, when somebody hurts us, what's our response? And if you go deep enough, what do you discover once you get there? That image of Tosti, an American, he's an American, he's not a native, he's not a, he's not Queequeg and he's not um, Dago, he's, that's an American Indian. It's as native as you get. And he's hammering that bird and taking it down with him. He's not going to go down with taking something of heaven with him. Those are the lines. Yeah? Sorry. Sorry. And so the bird of heaven with archangelic shrieks and his imperial beak thrust upwards and his whole captive form folded in the flag of Ahab went down with a ship which like Satan would not sink to hell till she had dragged a living part of heaven along. One of the things you have to say, Ahab has been fighting against an, in, an inhuman dog, an inhuman theology. And he's going down. The analogy between this bird, you know, taking part of heaven with you, Ahab's a part of heaven. God made him. He's been spending his whole life doing this, and he's going down. So in one sense, I think what we're showing is the effect of this in Satan, in working on the very best things of people, when they're acting out of their best intentions without knowing 
that they're actually doing something fiendish, going to hell. Are you all following? I hope I've said that clearly enough. If this, if this is right, then it's the most profound unmasking of a central disorder in Christianity since the Reformation. There's nobody, and the interesting thing for me is if you read Melville long enough, you'll find Shakespeare, every, Dante and Shakespeare are everywhere through. No, nobody since Shakespeare has shown tragic heroes like this, nobody. He has a grasp of the depth of our human nature that nobody's had since Dante and Shakespeare. Dostoevsky gets really as close, but anyway, that's my thought, that, that Melville is showing us something so deeply human, and we have to see that. We have to feel it. He has to make us feel that so we can feel what's really lost when Satan can pull off what he does. It's not just cheap people who don't think, or it's very often the very best of us gone wrong. Let me stop there. Any questions about that? Any or disagreements or differences? I'm interested to hear what you... And we're going to take things down with us too. <laughs> Say? Go ahead. I don't. You know Voltaire. Yeah, but I'm, what, what's the point here? I, oh, I'm just saying his 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 task is real stuff. horrible because he was fighting the Catholic Church, and then at the end, you know, his people wouldn't let the priest get there. Maybe one of the sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Something that wasn't really a mind, but was defiant against the church. Maybe one of the clearest ways to make this point that I'm—I hope I'm being clear—was Satan just a scumbag? Satan was the noblest of angels. He had a greater nobility than any angel. So. Picture that in a human being, that very often our greatest nobility can be our undoing when it's turned from God. That if, if, we're, if we're, particularly with trying to be just, you know, getting, bad, getting back at a wrong, that getting back at a wrong, I mean, what can be more justifying than getting back at a wrong? The Protestant revolt is, is all about that. These Catholics were all corrupt, and they were. You know, that what can be more just and noble than fighting against a wrong? But if we're watching this closely and reading it, it seems to me, I mean, that's why Melville goes to such pains to show this human side of Ahab. He's, he's good, he's noble, but he says to Starbuck, beat me as, the, as a blank. Do not, Ahab is Ahab. This whole thing's decreed. He's caught in that, and he will, he will see it through to the end. That last image of Testigo banging on that thing is an image of spite. He's going to have his word. He will own it, even while the ship is going to hell. If, if this is an unmasking at its depths, which is what I'm claiming it is, that's one of the most perfect images of what's at the bottom of this nobility. It's spite. Mary, go ahead. I was just going to say one Bible truth. Sometimes by deceit, like the amber green, they kept accumulating wealth and they got 
They got what? They got none of their wealth. Yeah. Right. They lost it all. Right. And remember, everybody that everybody in the ships goes down. And I remember Doc saying when we first started, she started reading, and she was reading the, the dinner that they all had after the stub killed the first whale. It's hard not to like those people with all their failings. Yeah. Stubb's a good man. Starbucks a good man. Flasco's a good man. Queequeg is a really good man. They're all going down. If that's an image of industrial America in its relationship to nature to get what it wants, Melville is showing us there's a real danger to what America's doing that America... Remember what I said, back at land, what happens at sea is exploring the metaphysics, what's underneath. Um, if that ship's an image of industrial America, it's, it's an image of a real danger here. Let me take last questions, because I'm so sorry. This is, but I wanted to finish this tonight, because I don't want to... Sorry? Any last questions or? I think we, we kind of skipped the part about the, if you want to call it a miracle, that Queequeg's coffin was what saved Ishmael. Yeah. Let's take the, I, I'm so sorry. What does he come back, if he's a Jonah figure, he, he was spared. A miracle takes place. It's not just the coffin, it's the hawks and the sharks. He's being for this guy to say this is an inscrutable mystery, that the, and, and I just read you the line where Ishmael says, there's a providential design to things. If the one thing you can say about Ishmael is he's scrutinizing everything. If it's inscrutable, why does he scrutinize as much as he does? If there's anything to say about that, if there's a logos, there's an intelligibility and a meaning everywhere, and Ishmael gets it. For a modern to say inscrutable, what does Ishmael come back to tell us what does he know serious question what does he know from being spared this whole voyage that's important for us to hear melody what does Ishmael come back to tell us And, and why would I not want to hear that, please? Because it's a little liberal, I know, but... <laughs> I'm only sorry you're not here enjoying the wine with us. <laughs> I absolutely agreed with your comment, by the way. I don't know why you said I wouldn't agree with it, but... Any last thoughts? Lori, come on, you... I, no, don't tell me, because I've been watching. You've had something on your mind all... No? I don't believe it. I think also we, we did skip a part about the ship coming back and saving it. The ship coming back and his coffin and all that. Right. There, was, there was a lot. Yeah, there was a lot building up to that so that he survived. Right. And 
Yeah. The other, the other captain was looking for his son, and all of a sudden he finds this one. An orphan. Yeah. And a really important, really important orphan. The way the names of the ships kind of reminds me of the 